Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, which is, I think, what we're going to settle on as the uh, the catchphrase or something for the show. Uh, I'm half of your host, Mr. Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined today by, of course, Gabriel Krauser. Hello, hello, hello. The other, the other half of your hosts, uh, I should not neglect to say. Um, right, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, I think... The first thing we should talk about is precisely, I think, one of the more delightful stories we've heard uh, of in the last week, and that is something Gabriel sent to me. It's a bit of an old story, but it is the story of uh, the Cliff Young Shuffle. Oh, my so word. <laughs> so let, let tell me if, I, if, I, if I'm forgetting anything, Gabriel, but this is a story of a, what is he, 60-year-old farmer? No, hold on, Nick. No, you've got to tell the story right. Let's start okay, with ultra-marathon runners running from Sydney to Melbourne or something absurd like that. These people run for seven days. They run for 18 hours. They sleep for six hours. They run for 18 hours. Like they... hundreds and hundreds of kilometers, just extreme yeah. endurance running. It's like the most crazy stuff in the universe. Yeah, like five, four comrades in a row, but over seven days. Yeah. And it's it's really, I mean, people are trying really hard. And uh, one of the big ones is from, I think, Sydney to Melbourne. And uh, all these young bucks are there and they've been eating their protein bars and like stretching and doing all the things they're supposed to they've do. They've got their professional coaches. Yeah. And psychological assistance and it's all lined up. And along comes Cliff, a 62-year-old Australian farmer wearing Wellington boots. And Cliff sort of looks very out of sorts in this place, but he is very skinny. And they say, are you here to support? And he says, no, I'm here to run, mate. And off they go. And Cliff is immediately stone cold lost. Because while everyone else is actually jogging, Cliff is doing a shuffle. He's just sort of shuffling along. And it's not a walk. It's not like a power walk, which is actually exhausting. He's definitely <laughs> bouncing a little bit, but he's hardly moving his arms and his legs. It's just like a sort of bouncy, silly walk. It looks like it's something out of Monty Python and yeah. also looks a little bit like how I ran after the second time that I broke my kneecap. Like it is <laughs> like how you'd imagine a very old man sort of who wanted to look like he was running. Uh but couldn't be bothered. <laughs> that that's that's how Cliff looked, and right. he is stone cold lost. And everyone runs away from him. And then they go have a nap. Eighteen hours later, and he keeps on running. And then they all wake up, and they're still ahead of him. And they run further away, but he so keeps just to be shuffling. Clear, he runs through the night. <laughs> yes, <every> time. <laughs> and then the second night, they go for a nap, and he overtakes them while they're all sleeping. And then on the third day, you see this interview where Cliff is stopped on the side of the road for, I kid you not, a pint of milk and uh, a change of shoes. He's finally putting on sneakers. And uh, some interviewer is like, well, Cliff, you know, you haven't slept in uh, in two and a half, three days. Do you think you're going to have a nap <laughs> anytime soon? And Cliff says, well, you see now. They were all ahead of me, and they went to sleep, and now they're behind me. 
But if I go to sleep, I reckon they might catch up. So I'm going to get running. And they say, but Cliff, <laughs> have you got a plan about when you're going to sleep? I mean, this race, there's still five more days left in this race. A human being can go and, you know, when do you plan on sleeping? And he says, well, the thing you've got to understand is I'm coming first and they're catching up on me. So I better not dilly-dally. I think I'm going to shuffle along. And he, and he's like, I mean, and I don't even want to like compromise his image because he is quite a handsome man. But he has false teeth, as some people in their 60s do. And he's taken them out because he says they rattle as I shuffle. So he's got like, the, he's like drinking this milk like a small child and having this interview. But so like he looks a little bit like a baby and what he sounds like, his intellect sounds like he's propounding the logic of a four-year-old, but he has the hard steeled will of an iron man, truly. Yeah. And he gets back to shuffling but after his thing of milk. And after a few days, I mean, it becomes like a national Australian phenomenon. And people are crowding the streets and cheering him on. And they can't believe because he keeps not going to sleep and just carrying on running uh, that he's clearly in the lead. And eventually he wins and breaks the record by two days, which I think is possibly it's, it's, the most astonishing break of a record. Right. It's, it's, it's almost time. literally the story of the tortoise and the hare, right? Like yeah. in terms of, of, of how, uh, how hard work, the slow guy who just kept on going and didn't sleep or take any breaks eventually won. Uh, and he said that his his experience came from spending literally days jogging around his farm, rounding up sheep in gumboots. You know, you've um, got to run after the sheep. Sometimes there's a storm <laughs> and some of the sheep are on the wrong side of the farm. you got to run after them through the storm. So this, <laughs> this this uh this this race is I think nine hundred and sixty kilometers, which is very long. <laughs> outrageous! It is outrageous. This guy broke the record by two days, from like seven and a half days to five and a half days, and then he gets onto the podium and uh, announces, "I'm giving all the money, the the prize money, to all the other guys who managed to finish the race." I suppose yes. he doesn't really need it because he's a successful sheep farmer. And then the interviewer says, so do you think you're going to do it next year? And he says, no, nah, I reckon not, eh? I reckon I'm never <laughs> going to do that again in my life. <laughs> so, so a Greek so guy. a one-off wonder. <laughs> yeah, no, he is. He's a complete one-off wonder. That changed sport forever. Sorry, yeah. Uh, uh, actually beat his record, I think, a couple of years later. But basically, I think partly inspired by him, um, yeah, they changed their technique. They didn't sleep so much. They figured yeah, it out. Yeah, he taught, he taught them. It's actually an amazing story because he just taught everyone something new because he was a complete outsider from the sort of bubble. I mean, that's one of the interesting parts of the story, right? Is that, um, you know, there were all these guys who, you know, studied this stuff for a living and worked on this as like a career or a passion of them themselves. And there was like a culture and community and they all talked together and developed strategies and it was highly competitive and yet they still somehow managed to miss something, which is this the, the young shuffle that you talked about, where he, you know, his little sort of gumboot walking thing. Um, which, <laughs> no, dude, it's, which, yeah. 
came to be adopted by other runners because they realized it expended less energy. Yeah, both uh, the shuffle and the sleep strategy. And I think it is like, I remember when I was a high school student, I read a study um, where Americans had tried to help Chinese farmers to improve their technique. Um, and they'd been doing, I don't know, I guess they'd been doing that since Nick, Nixon opened the face to China. And a group of social scientists went around the world to look at how people were using these tractors and plows before GPS and all that when there really was some technique to it. And they found like in some countries, people worked much harder and were much less efficient. China was the case study for this. Right. In other countries, right. they were half and half. I think America was a bit half and half, uh, yeah. although with a greater standard distribution. So there were some really excellent guys and some really rubbish guys, uh, especially on the not putting that much effort into it factor. And then there was like a, a village in Italy or something, like a little bit of countryside in Italy where everyone just used that tractor the way that it had been designed and were getting much, much better results than everyone else. Right, but not right. working much harder, like working an hour a day less actually than the Chinese guys were, but they were creaming it. And the thought was, I could now put it as like an esteem economy thing. Like within that competitive environment, if everyone's stuck inside the same paradigm, then they've got yes. this, they've got the same recipe. So everyone's trying to make the same recipe slightly better and they're eking out these marginal returns. But they miss out on Right. They're all they're the all making a vanilla cupcake or something. And then suddenly yeah. one day someone comes along and makes a chocolate cupcake and then it blows everyone out of the water. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and in fact, one of the problems is the 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 esteem market can be operating such that wayward thinkers are rejected before they get the chance to prove their point and cliff young right. like when he first enrolled and arrived like people were clearly trying to put him off yeah i mean it, it does sound silly and i think that you know the smart money should always have been on the the not you know 60 year old farmers <laughs> right? yes no i think that's that is the, the smart guy doesn't see that guy and be like oh well i'm gonna bet the farm yeah. Yeah. So it is, but it's an interesting, it is an interesting um, case study for, I suppose, something that we're seeing in science. And science, you know, Thomas Kuhn wrote the theory of scientific revolutions in the somewhere in the middle of the 20th century. And he and Karl Popper were like the two famous philosophers of science sort of really gave a name to the genre in a way that caught some public cachet. Popper much more so. And he just defined the scientific method as, you know, he, def he described science as being that enterprise which deals in falsifiable claims. And the scientific method is to make a falsifiable claim and then try your damnedest to falsify it. And everything which has not yet been falsified is then a scientific truth. Um, and uh, everything else has been scientifically debunked. And the scientific truth is not the real truth because, you know, Newton's theory of how gravity works hadn't been falsified until it was 200 years later, through a few centuries later, um, when we stumbled into special relativity, general relativity, quantum theory, and so on. Right. Um, but it's true enough that, th that that counts as scientific truth. That was Popper's idea, and I think that, together with the name, was was more pop accessible. But Kuhn's thought was a little bit more sophisticated. 
he he because it was more historical and what he noticed was basically that a, that a scientific revolution is something like a it's it's actually the paradigm exemplar for uh, a a, dis, a a major disruption of the esteem market that you have these institutions you have these groups of people who all think in relatively similar ways trying to eke out minor marginal improvements and then what happens is some 62-year-old farmer comes in the wrong kind of shoes with completely <laughs> outrageous ideas about how you're supposed to doing this figure the thing out which everyone knows are wrong and then that guy turns out to um explain not only the anomalies that the first guys kept stumbling up against uh but also how to figure out a whole bunch of things that we didn't even know we did right so so people don't uh, people don't know he's wrong they just assume he's wrong yeah for the most part yeah. because no one's actually bothered to try his way before and find out that actually it is you know rubbish yeah and when and when and when he gets up and espouses his theory he is readily shouted down right and and kun traces this um if this sort of pattern of people having a consensus and it really is like fashion it's like sort of everyone dresses this way and then someone dresses in a funny different way mm. and most people are like oh my word what are they doing and but then there's a bit of a fight and then i mean one of the things couldn't sadly have to point out now and then is there's some holdouts for the old theory that are so committed to it that they that the only way to really deal with them is just wait for them to die <laughs> and so the full acceptance of of some parts of uh for example getting over phlogiston phlogiston theory is a nice example because it's something that everyone now considers to be crazy phlogiston was that element which had a negative weight uh which was supposed to be flame and this sort of has an ancient legacy you know people thought the key elements of the of the of the universe or sort of water well, and flame yeah. earth and air it goes back to the ancient greeks they believed the whole world was made of yeah. four elements and not just them but uh, so so yeah. even as people started not exactly developing an, an atomic theory but developing something that was sometimes called alchemy and sometimes called chemistry uh which was the thought that you can really change things into other things uh because they've got base level building blocks that are microscopic that you can't see with the naked eye so that you start noticing that clay and cup really are just different forms of the same thing although their properties are quite right. different in terms of shininess and plasticity and so on um so they're like well what about flame and they thought well no there's a special flame is still a special element that's one of the basic building blocks and they started wondering about the conservation of mass a uh, long time deep in the renaissance and they're like well mm. you know it, it does seem plausible that you know you shouldn't be able to matter shouldn't be able to appear or disappear there should be something like a conservation of mass but they also noticed that if you weigh um a lot of wood or a candle or whatever and then you set it on fire then it comes out <laughs> lighter at the right. end of the fire burning and they said well that must mean that the flame has a negative weight so it is this negative weighted entity and that theory held on for a long time <laughs> and people who doubted it were castigated and renounced and so on and eventually 
the guys with a new theory did a whole bunch of other experiments which sort of supported their theory but there was a contest i mean the 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 data to some level the facts to some level to some degree underdetermine the data in other words two different theories can explain some of the same phenomenon and both theories have some anomalies so neither theory is perfect and so then people do a lot of like well you know I know, I know you are, but what am I? You, you, it's a sort of like silly <laughs> game. Yeah. Yeah. And that is science. I mean, that is a lot of science. I know mm. my theory's got a problem, but yours is bigger. And then you sort of get into some philosophical argument about what is the is the, the most important desiderator for a good scientific theory. Our theory is more elegant, they would say. So yes, we both <laughs> got anomalies, but yours lacks elegance. And then how do you really go forward from that? And then you just, and then some of them die and then, the mainstream or more of the youth take up the the better idea, then it goes forward. So it's a very sociological, very irritating and accidental thing. And I think part of the reason that Kuhn was alive to it was because science had gone, th I mean, there had been mainstream uh, sort of uh, uh, race scientists that really were not following the facts, but you could see how the whole political institution rewarded them and someone who was trying to push against them would get punished. Uh, also in the Soviet Union, very strange ideas about evolution and uh, sort of basically the science around agriculture and sociology and, you know, science insofar as economics is a science. Um, those debates seemed very, it seemed very clear that it mattered which kind of institutions you were in. Um, right. In terms of what is going to be accepted and what is not going to be accepted. Anyway, okay, so we've gone from an Australian Must runner to follows a party brief line, comrade. <laughs> Exactly. A, a brief outline on the old uh, philosophy of science and, and how and how you, you must never let a, a woke person or something like that monopolize the, the, the true fact that that science as an ideal, as in, you know, this, this system that allows us to tap into facts beyond superstition that are curious and useful is different to science as an institution, which is just run by monkeys like you and me that have barely crawled out of the tree and uh, have all kinds of jealousies and marital intrigues and political forces and all kinds of things can get in the way of the, yeah. of the or, or can create a gap between the ideal. And, and let us not forget that great, that great fellow of, of, of men and women of destroyer of careers, ruin of lives, pride, which... Yeah. Is, is the thing that undoes so many, you know, all great stories have at some point, any, all great tragedies have someone being proud at some point, and then very it almost much. always precedes the fall. And I think uh, the and science man, is very much suffers from that sometimes. So I think our, the proud man of the day, of 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 the era, might be one of them. How do I say his Nick? How do I say his name, Nick? Peter Duzak. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Hold on, let me. I've just lost it all of a sudden. Uh, Peter Dzak. Yeah, I think that's right. Dzak, president of the Eco Health Alliance of New York. So this man. So listeners to this podcast will hopefully remember the name Neil. No, Niall Ferguson. Yes. Who. Was uh, he's a it British? Doesn't, it, it doesn't help yeah. that Niall Ferguson and Neil Ferguson are both famous British people. <laughs> yes, the one a, a grand historian at the Hoover Institute, uh, 
and the other uh what is it university college of london or something but he yeah. he ferguson wrote the uh the model which first determined that uh without lockdown laws around the world for many months or years um i don't know 50 was, million people it was going to be a, yeah a tidal wave of death unmatched for for decades 50 to 100 million yeah an apocalypse okay and 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 uh, and the, the really bad mistake that he made was that uh, he modeled that if the government doesn't enforce a lockdown people aren't voluntarily going to change it right he he treated he treated people like chess pieces whom the government is the only thing with the power to move them yeah sort of thing well yeah. put so so anyway we're not going to get back into lockdown debate we thought i thought a little bit of it was good that south africa went pretty crazy um and partly because of arguments coming from ferguson directly and from uh, uh acolytes other scientists who were walk, working according to the same convention that humans um can't make voluntary action absent government intervention but peter peter duzak and I think Ferguson's name is going to stand out in the history. I think in a hundred years' time, people studying, well, especially because he went to see what, what his mistress or something after violating the lockdown rules he had recommended. Yeah, that was what what did in for his career, right? Yeah. yeah. Oof, as the kids it's, say. <laughs> yeah. No, that was a that was a, a terrible embarrassment. But so Peter Duzak. Um, is the name behind another idea. So the, the one idea was absent lockdown. No one's going to change their behavior. No one's ever going to put a mask unless you make a law for it and so on, um, which eventually becomes true. If you start out with laws, then you create these perverse incentives and people riot against it and it all gets very silly. Anyway, so there's a name behind one of the ideas, which has defined the last year of all of our lives. Peter Duzak is another name because he is the guy basically who establishes the scientific convention according to which it is out of the question that SARS-CoV-2 was produced yeah. in a lab right and then accidentally escaped, escaped to the wider world as yeah. saw as as the smallpox escaped from British labs in the 60s and killed people as as terrible viruses have escaped from laboratories in America and Europe and everywhere else that has such sophisticated labs yeah. on a semi-viruses basis for the last 50 years. So right. Vir it's yeah. happened Viruses before, but he, but he said it yeah. couldn't have happened this time. Yeah, this is completely silly. This is obviously exactly like SARS-1, which came, I think, specifically from someone eating a civet or something in, in China. Uh, and that any suggestion otherwise was conspiracy-mongering lunacy and crack pottery. So... Nick, should we trust Peter on the face of it? Well, <laughs> it turns out maybe not so much um, because uh, some journalists have found that his organization um, funded a very specific project in, uh, in China, as it turns out. And this project was based at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And this project was attempting to find out how a future version of SARS, um, if it evolved in the wild, what we, one would need to look out for to see if it was going to be a big danger to you know uh, people, and so they gave funding for this project to create a super version of SARS 
that uh, would be as infectious as possible. So then that could be the sort of model to look at um, for producing vaccines and stuff against any potential future SARS virus. That was the idea of the research. In fact, not just one. In December 2019, he was bragging about, what is it, dozens or hundreds of uh, new basic coronaviruses, which is the kind of virus we're dealing right. with in the plague, uh, that had been developed. And this is called gain-of-function research. Yes. And the idea here is that uh, you 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 evolve a virus in a Petri dish. One way of going about it, basically, is you just get this virus, you put it in a in a test tube, in a, in a little Petri dish, and you give it the kinds of foods that it needs, and you sort of uh, challenge it in certain ways and you, uh, basically get a lot of life cycles going through for the virus, and then you right. take the best bits and you put it in a new Petri dish and repeat the process. So you're always taking the cream of the cream uh, to get to evolve them in particular directions. That's one thing to do. And another thing to do is to splice them. So you take a bit of this virus and a bit of that virus and you cut them together and, you know, it's not quite 3D printing, but it's 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 a sort of bizarrely precise process by which right, you can... it's cool. It's the cool kind of gene editing we can do these days. Exactly. So you better do a bit of gene editing to create a virus, and then you're like, okay, this is not going to be perfect, so let's put it in a culture where it'll survive and replicate, and then the evolutionary process will help it to get better, and then you put it in another culture, which is a little bit tougher, so that the weaker versions die and even better versions survive. Then you take that and put it in an even tougher culture, and then you get like the super virus that you've been looking for. And depending on what you started with from your splicing exercise or depending on how you serialize it in the various cultures, you can sort of aim for particular targets of of what you're trying to get out of this virus. And gain-of-function research is about trying to get the virus to be the, the best, most deadliest, terrible thing for human beings that it could be. Because once you have that... um. You can theoretically come up with a vaccine. It's going to take you can you can build all sorts of exactly. You can build all sorts of weapons to destroy it. You can find its weaknesses. So it's kind of like a little bit like war gaming, right? Where you 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 have someone pretend to be the enemy and say, "How do we invade our own country?" Uh, Except you know you 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 make the virus. You basically make the bomb that would wipe out your country. Yes. Uh, So obviously there are some benefits to this, but there's also quite a lot of criticism because people say, "Well, guys." Um, this research is all good and all, but isn't there a risk that you could accidentally create a super virus and then mistakenly uh, release it to the world? As we know, sometimes viruses that are being studied in labs get out, um, as you mentioned before, with things like smallpox. And I think um, there have been several, I think even there may have been a case with Ebola that was similar or something like that as well, uh, Yeah, that I remember reading about, um, which is, you know, those those have never caused a global pandemic, but it's always been, you know, a bit of a disaster. Sometimes some people have died. Yeah, it ha- exactly. So it's a bit of a worry. And I don't, I, I, I'm kind of reluctant to wade very deep into the debate about whether there should be gain-of-function research or not. I'm inclined to think that there should be gain-of-function research um, and that it should be done very carefully and under a lot of scrutiny because... Uh, my sense is that when you deliberately try and ban a kind of research, it doesn't go away. It just gets done by less responsible, shady right. actors. So so is is perhaps the but, fact that there's this controversy yeah. around this research why an American um, well, group was no, so designed to fund this in China? Let's, 
so that is part of the problem, right? So the state mm. was uh, so the Wuhan. Look, uh, one reason we know that the Wuhan laboratory was doing research on gain of gain of function research on beta coronaviruses, uh, in particular those similar to SARS-CoV-1, is that they got funding from the American federal government at arm's length. But in order to get Mm -hmm. that funding, there had to be public record explanations of what the money's for. So we're not just going on uh, Peter Duzak's sort of media comments in December 2019, bragging about how well they'd done at breeding a super coronavirus. We're also going on, well, before that, before they started the research, they said, here's what we want to do. We want to breed a lot of coronavirus. Now, there's some sense, it it, it does seem to me that uh, this could have taken place in the U.S., but that the U.S. had started to worry about gain-of-function research under the Obama administration and so found it more convenient to outsource this research. I'm not entirely true, sorry, I'm not entirely sure how far that argument goes. For example, mm. I listened to a sort of six-hour, five-hour podcast with Sam Harris and a sort of science fiction writer converted into a, a pretty serious uh, biology journalist who's been thinking about gain-of-function re- research since before SARS-CoV-2, since before the plague. And his right. argument is basically that we should allow it and the genetic Printers are going to be in high schools and universities in 20 or 30 years. It's going to be as easy to print uh, an Ebola virus as it is to print a gun. And it really is very easy to print a gun. Right. It's already possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, terrorists, if you if you spread that capacity over anyone in society with a thousand dollars, uh, the odds of some maniac, lone wolf, getting $1,000, getting a genetic yeah, printer, downloading smallpox. And, and so to preempt it, you need to, you need to adopt Dude. the technology so you can find out what the most dangerous things out there could possibly be, right? That's the yeah, idea. Exactly. exactly. And he spoke to some reduction in the gain-of-function research in America, uh, definitely cuts, but it didn't sound like they made it all go away. Well, look, they certainly, they certainly were doing this in part in China because China is... Uh, where most of the research on coronaviruses in particular takes place because they were the center of the SARS outbreak and they were quite traumatized by it. And so there's been a lot of um, research in China to try and work out, you know, is there another coronavirus that's going to come out like SARS that could be a big problem? Um, the, 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 the provincial governors in China can get punished if it's found that there's been an outbreak um, of, of of a undiscovered flu or something in their territory yeah um so there's a lot of government pressure as well which is also possibly by the way why it took so long for the true uh magnitude of the problem with COVID to come out Uh, it took it a while to come out because you know the local officials were like no no we need to cover this up because otherwise we'll get in trouble we'll be (laughs) that's law of unintended consequences very much yeah so (laughs) so so at two levels at two levels okay so so good reason not to trust Peter Dujak is that he writes, he organizes this group of scientists, not many, to write in Lancet in February 2020 that there's no ways this thing could have been concocted in a lab. Right. It must have come from a um, the nature, from a bat or a pangolin or something. And he doesn't declare his conflict of interest. He has a clear conflict of interest. If it has come from 
a lab, in particular a lab that he is closely connected to, it's going to be embarrassing to him. It's going to be make his career difficult. Maybe there'd be some culpability. I doubt there'd be legal culpability. Um, but there would be esteem culpability, and, and that would be really bad for his career. Yeah, this is the kind of stain that you don't wash off, I don't think, so easily. No, never, um, never, never. Yeah. So, so he didn't declare that conflict of interest. Um, and then there's another sort of um, paper that comes, also it was very soon uh, at the time, uh, in February, you know, one key idea in science going back to Karl Popper is, well, let's be careful about epistemic humility. Let's claim as fact that's what we can really support, but let's also, you know, make one social fact very clear. This is what we don't know. Uh, and in February 2020, we just didn't know one way or another. And I don't think we know right. now either. But yeah. so, so uh, let's, to let's, say let's we know clear. for sure that it's not uh, a lab thing is a bit right. So, so that, yeah, that's exactly, I think, the point I, I just wanted to make is that we're not necessarily saying that COVID definitely came from this particular research project in this lab in Wuhan, and that's how it got out into the world. And, you know, this is the resulting, this is all their fault, basically. We're not, yeah. we're not saying that, although we're saying it's possible. We um, are saying it's possible. That is a fact. It is possible. Yes. So it's possible and also not just possible, but, um, probable enough to take very seriously. Right. And 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 I think one of the key things to note here is that, I mean, I have spoken to, at this stage, six top flight epidemiologists or virologists uh, from South Africa, Europe and America over since, I would say, December last year who yep. have all said to me, you can never put my name to this, but I strongly suspect, I think there's a high probability that this thing was cooked up in a lab and accidentally broke out. Yeah. And But never, never put my name to it. And 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 I, I think what's prompting us to speak about this here is that some prominent American uh scientists do seem to now be willing to put their head above the parapets they do seem to be willing right. to arrive like the 60 year old farmer and say guys you've all been thinking about <laughs> this thing in one way but maybe we can get to the truth much quicker as it were uh if by we thinking in another way and we know that when we arrive you're going to laugh at our wellington boots and our shuffle and our weird ways of going about things and you're going to say we're terrible terrible and the, our children hats in this case as well <laughs> Yeah, children mustn't listen to us because they might get the wrong idea and they might also shuffle and not sleep for five days when they do long distance marathons. Uh, so, you know, turn off the cameras when these guys come along. But it's just it's just noteworthy that uh, that it's no longer just good scientists giving anonymous notes to journalists. Some are now yeah. uh, standing up for it. But and I'm not so interested in the this, names. I'm more interested in the reasons for why. And that's what I'd like to get into. But go ahead, Nick. Okay, yeah. No, I just wanted to say that uh, a lot of the story we've been telling, I think, I mean, uh, at least that I've been telling, uh, Gabriel's got a lot more direct experience, as he says, because he was talking to all these um, virologists and stuff. But most of my knowledge on this comes from an article by a guy called Nicholas Wade, uh, who's, who's a science writer, and he's worked for various big publications um, over the years. Uh, and and he yeah he was at the New York Times for decades yeah 
Right, right. So he lays out the case um, that uh, of how the esteem market trap basically happened, and the sort of esteem blanket was put over any attempts to find alternative theories of the origins of COVID um, that weren't related to to natural evolution. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. How, how so, did that blanket okay. get placed on 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 things? Well, I mean, so so Doctor Dejac, Peter Dejac. He starts it off, and he's got basically two arguments for why this thing couldn't be made in a lab. Right. And the one argument is, if you look at how the spike protein works on a SARS-CoV-2 virus, and so you look at it in a test tube, okay? And then on the other hand, you go to your computer, and you say, how computer... Would you design a perfect spike protein to latch onto ACE2 receptors in people's lungs and cells so that a virus could get in there? And he sees it, a, a serious discrepancy. Yeah. So his thought is, if someone was going to design this in a lab, they would design the perfect one, the perfect computer right, be, one. be much stronger than this one, basically. And that's not what this is. So this can't be it. Right. And that argument is, so he, he kind of puts that argument in, in two ways. One's about the, the ACE2 receptor, um, and the other one's about another aspect of the virus. But basically, what where both arguments fall short, besides sort of lacking in imagination, is you know, that someone might go about designing the virus in a different way is is lacking a right. practical grip, which he clearly has, but in his paper, lacking a practical grip on how the actual development of gain-of-function viruses works. So gain-of-function viruses don't work like this. It's not like you say to the computer, you know, what would the ideal spike, spike protein be? And then you print that whole thing out. Right. Printing out... If I've got this right from the Sam Harris podcast, I don't think we've ever printed out an entire virus. I think we've come close, but it's much more normal to print out a section, right? Rather right, than the whole and, thing. And bits if, and pieces and then letting it grow itself. Yeah, bits and pieces, and then you splice them together, and then you put it in the culture that's the most likely to keep it going and then you do that serial that serial thing of like taking the what survived in the one culture and then transplanting into the next culture so right, you so let evolution do a lot of the work most gain it's of much function more research, like a it's much more like a garden or a, or, or, a, or a greenhouse rather than a machine than like building a motorcycle or something which is obviously what so we should expect correct. because it is you know it is like a growing organism right so correct yes so in 30 years time maybe you'll be able to print out an ebola virus from a from a machine but right now it's just like gardening you you cut off this plant and you put a little growth hormone on its on the stem of the branch and you stick it onto another thing and i've done my mom's done this in the garden i've helped her and then you can have a tree that's sort of growing out another kind of tree from the side that's the kind of that's the kind of uh model uh that gain of function research really works on so that's debunking a little bit of the initial story. But the problem is that when the initial story came out, journalists didn't challenge it. I think in large part because they didn't understand it, but also in large part because people were so terrified. 
Yeah, but we've spent like what ten minutes now just trying to explain <laughs> precisely yeah. this this how this stuff plays out. It's not easy to put. You know, you're a journalist. You're looking for stories. It's a hot new thing. There's all this information just coming out right now, and everyone wants to know something about COVID. And so, a big journal publishes a letter, um, or, or, or what 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 yeah. was it? Was it an, a letter, an op-ed, something like that, that says this is silly, and so you say, well, these people know better than me, so I'm going to just report that, which yeah. is a reasonable stance to take. Again, like the betting man at the Australian race, you're gonna the, the the smart bet is to bet on the dudes wearing sneakers, and who've done this before. Because uh, yeah, nine times out of ten, they're probably gonna be right. That's exactly it. Okay, so so <clears throat> less sympathy for the scientists who stay quiet about this, because I do think it's their job to put aside, just as I think uh, Peter Dzak should have declared his conflict of interest um, and exposed himself to the potential shame of, I mean, he if he declared that that conflict of interest, immediately a lot of publications would have said, look, by the way, immediately a lot of, it's not like this was a hard thing to figure out. Some publications did immediately denounce him, but they were mostly like very French. Mainstream publications would have denounced him as, as a potential uh, human agent who was part of the course, okay, right. of this terrible thing. And then there would have been good talking heads doing what I'm about to do, which is to say, you know, even if you are causally connected to a terrible thing, if you weren't doing it deliberately, our sense of culpability should be very different. If you put in all the best measures and there was just bad luck, then we really actually should try and stop people from blaming that person too right. aggressively at all. I mean, there is just such a thing as bad luck. And just also like we shouldn't throw him out of – uh, him as a baby out of the bathwater. We also shouldn't necessarily throw gain of function out. Uh, uh, we should rather look at better ways of, of thinking about gain of function research. One of the stories that Nicholas Wade in particular uh, cases that he makes is that there are different sort of security levels um, at these laboratories. The highest is four. But the, that one of the problems is, and he says that this happened at the Wuhan lab, that there's evidence that this happened at the Wuhan, that, that is sort of uh, on public record, that at the Wuhan lab, um, coronaviruses that were less coronaviruses that were less deadly and infectious mm -hmm. than MERS and SARS were studied at level two. But when you're doing the gain of function research, the whole point is that you turn a level two virus into a level four virus. Right. And right. so, in a sense, all gain of function research that is about um, producing more infectious and deadly viruses. That should all really be level four because whatever you're starting out with, you can start out with the rose, but you're getting like, I don't know, poison ivy or uh, yeah, exactly something terrible out of it. Anyway, so so that's, that's the kind of proposal that I'd like to make. And it's the kind of one that I think people would have been, that kind of thing would be common knowledge by now. Everyone would have a view on that debate by now if it had really think... started in February last year. But instead... What happened is there was like, look, you've got to believe that is a crazy conspiracy theory to think that this was made in a lab. Uh, well, or so, or so get think... along with the mainstream. And so that puts a blanket down on people thinking about the real reasons virologically to consider this virus um, to be something that came out of yeah, a laboratory. Along by, by and a the, lab. And the, there are a few points, but the main point is 
is is just this. And this is a little bit complicated to explain, but bear with me for three minutes as I do my damnedest. So when this virus, this SARS-CoV-2, like any coronavirus, when it approaches your cell, it's got its little doorknob sticking out, the spike proteins, and they and let's put it like this. On the end of it is part of the spike protein whose job it is to figure out when have I come into contact with the kind of thing that I'd like to break into. Right. So it's like the whiskers or something, and it, it's sort of, yeah, yeah. okay, here we are. This is the place we want to go. But the thing that's detecting this is where we want to break into is not the same as the thing that then has the ability to break into the cell. So the detector has to kind of snap off the edge and then the, the knife that was hidden inside the glove can latch on and open up the cell and then the virus gets in and injects its RNA uh, or DNA, some viruses have DNA, oh. and starts reproducing itself. Now, there's a fancy. There are various ways that can be do, that this can be done. That the virus's spike at the edge can break off, and in all beta coronaviruses, which is the broad family within which SARS and MERS and SARS-CoV-2 and all of these things come from, there are, there's, there's one way that none of them use, and that is called a furin cleavage site. Right. And what a furin cleavage site is, is like just the very special and very useful way to make this break between, as it were, the detector on the outside and the and the, the sort of penetrator, really latcher, that comes within it. So hang but, on, hang on, Gabriel. You said that all coronaviruses in the beta group uh, don't use the furon cleaver. Uh, well, cleavage with site. the exception, with the exception of one called SARS. Which one is that? <laughs> ha! <laughs> really makes you wonder. <laughs> so this is this is a problem for people who think it came out of bats or anything, because there's nothing in bats. That acts like SARS-CoV-2 in this very right. important way. The, the, furon, the furon cleaver isn't very good for getting into bat cells. Uh, I, I, it's that, also rubbish for getting into bats. Yeah, so the, the human cells are the cells that it's really good at getting into. So it okay, kind of looks a lot human, like a... The human specificity thing is even more complicated. And this was yeah. a lesson that I got from a virologist at the start of the year. But basically, you know, when you think of DNA, I think most people think of like a couple of letters. Uh, you know, sort of. I think most people think of a twisting helixes going yes, on. Yes, the twisting helix, the twisting helix, and on on uh, on the end of both sides of the strand is like a letter. It's like A connects with G, and and so on and so forth. And there are only four letters, so each strand is holding two letters. Um, and. And, uh, and sometimes people think a gene is just sort of one of those letters. Turns out what a gene is, is something somewhat up for philosophical debate. And that's where Richard Dawkins <laughs> was actually really great, is he sort of helped make sense of that. Um, but the, the point I'm trying to get is, 
how's a good way to think about this? So different letters can make up, as it were, different words, and then different words can make up different sentences. So right. if we go from, and but you can have, you can have five letters making a word and five different letters making the same word. So there's a thing called synonymy, right? So uh, I'm I'm struggling to think out loud of two words that sound and are spelled completely differently, but that mean the same thing. Uh, uh, yeah, neither can I think of that. But but yeah, I think I think we get it. But you know what I mean, like right. like couch and chaise lounge are more or less the same thing. Car and automobile are just exactly the same thing. Right, right, right. But they look and sound very different. And then you can have different words making the same sentence. So like, I'm going to go over there. Uh, the boy hit the dog or the dog was hit by the boy. Okay, some of the words are the same, but the order's changed. One of the words is a completely different word. Was hit by rather than hit the was has been added in there. You can have sentences that have different words, but that nevertheless remain synonymous. And that's most obvious if you've got words that are synonymous, like, you know, automobile and car. Right. Now, this is all to say that in a, in a really significant bit of genetic information, that really significant bit of genetic information can be made up in different combinations. There's different ways to get to the same basic idea within that bit of genetic information. And computer coders will understand this. You know, to get a computer program to do, like to get the light flashing once every second in the top left corner of the screen, you can kind of go about that in different ways, even within the same coding language. Yeah, you can make a hundred nested if statements forever, but that's not going to work so well, but you can do it that way. You can do that, <laughs> or you can, you know, have a separate thing and you call it up, call up if, yeah. Okay, so why this matters is that there are specific signatures that you can pick up when you go below the level of sentence into the level of words and letters where you can see how even for the same sentences in some species you tend to find these letters and words and in other species you find these letters and words so different species have as it were different styles even if they're writing the same sentence and same sentence in the sense that if you were to swap out the one sentence for the other. If you were to splice it, cut it out, uh, this sentence with these words and letters and put in a different sentence with different words and letters, but where it would still work because those sentences mean the same thing, like right. changing the word automobile for car. But it's just for some species, viruses that target certain species are inclined to use words like car, and in attacking other species, they're inclined to use words like automobile. Now, as it turns out, in the differences between bats and pangolins and humans, there's a very clear difference in this uh, kind of uh, affinity for a particular phrase or style of reaching a sentence. And guess where the most clear and uncanny signature is of human phraseology 
in this virus? In all of the places of the virus, where does it seem to be the most uncannily human and very unbat-like? I don't know. You tell me. At the Furin cleavage site. Ah. <laughs> so the right, Furin so... cleavage site exists in SARS-CoV-2, but no other coronavirus that we know of, beta coronavirus. And at this very particular site, the way that that particular site is constituted bears all of the signatures of a virus that's been hanging out with humans for a, for a very, very long time. So there is a natural explanation for how this happened rather than the uh, lab design theory, which is that, you know, this virus was circulating undetected for quite a long time uh, amongst people in, in China. Uh, maybe it even didn't come from Wuhan, maybe it came from somewhere else. And then suddenly they only discovered it at some point, or maybe a variant emerged that was more deadly or something like that. And then they were like, oh my goodness, there's this virus here. We just thought it was a cold, but actually it's much worse. And then suddenly that new version spread to the whole the whole world. There is that um, Part of the problem with that theory is, as you say, China and its surrounding areas have been researching beta coronaviruses quite seriously for quite a while and there's no just positive evidence to show that that theory is true although there are a lot right. of blood samples of a lot of chinese people that got hella sick and died yeah and those who didn't so you know there's another theory which uh, nicholas wade brings up which is that if it did come from bats or something it might come from people researching bats uh in in the guano caves one and a half yeah. thousand kilometers or whatever it is from wuhan and then gone back to the wuhan laboratory because it's those guys who are the most likely to both spend so much time with the bats that you get the kind of opportunity for these one in a billion one in a gazillion mutations right. and I mean, then to come back and have the launch point for the virus be in wuhan rather than very yeah. far away where it would seem more naturally to come. So there are these possibilities. There are also other other sort of weird things. Like I think there've been some claims that if you there's there's a sort of thing that connects all of the hospitals where they detect the first COVID cases, which is that they all run on the same subway line as the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Mm. Um, I'm less sure of that one, but there are some claims that that's that's sort of the, uh, an early geographical pattern of the the virus is spread. So one of the major um, reasons to consider that the, the virus might have come from a lab is the is the is the pattern of mutation. Yeah. So so far everything's fitting with what we discussed the last time we talked about SARS CoV two, uh pretty close to the start of the year. Um was that uh, studies of beta coronaviruses, particularly from the UK for the last five decades, provide the strong suggestion that if you if this thing if if a beta coronavirus does get into the wild, then eight months is around the time that you should start expecting it to evolve some escape mutations. That means evolve the capacity to escape some of the immunodefense that people get from having gotten the virus and then recovering. Right. The other kind of mutation is a host mutation where it's just getting better at eating the kind of food that you are, so to speak. <laughs> and what you would expect, and so and so this this Indian strain 
seems you know it's fitting very much like okay the thing comes out and the south african strain looks like it comes out eight months later the indian strain looks like it very much comes out eight months later than that and and those are the cardinal ones that i'm talking about because they bear the cardinal hallmarks of real escape rather than the uk strain which just got slightly better at eating the kind of food that you have and and notwithstanding the fact that the brazil strain is a lot like the south africa strain i'm just using the most right. obvious names for these things um but the point that I'm trying to get to is that while that pattern seems to have fit with uh, at least the, the the research that I've read from the 90s uh, dating back, uh, so long before this was in any way a politicized thing, uh, what doesn't fit so well is the pattern of host mutation. Uh, zoonotic viral infection is much more – is usually what one expects – if you have a virus crossing from one species to another, is that it's got a steep learning curve, is that it's mutating quite regularly in non-synonymous ways. That means ways that have meaningful differences, not just the swapping out automobile for car, really meaningful differences. Yeah. Um, and meaningful differences that make it better at dealing with the host, at eating the kind of food that the host is and using the host's mechanisms uh, to spread and so on and so forth. And uh, it is like climbing a mountain. To reach the fitness peak would be like its most efficient place. Uh, if it crosses species, you'd expect it to sort of be at the bottom of like a, a diagonal mountain. And it's sort of climbing kind of day by day, getting a little bit better, a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, rather than like with these host mutations where it's sort of sitting flat line and then after a while you see so there's this, a leap where the, some where some particular combination of changes has finally been landed on that gives it a bit of a, a, a step up. And so this, what this we leaves, didn't this see... this leaves a bit of a trail, doesn't it? Yeah. It leaves a trail and genomic sequencing has been taking place from day one and we really don't see much of that trail. Uh, the surprising thing was that something like the British strain took so long to come about and that it had very much this hallmark of like the step up rather than a slow incremental sort of um, it arrived in quite a stable way, which again fits with the thought that it's been cultured and uh, oh, right. So the, Peter Dizak, so Dr. Peter Dizak was very proud of how well they'd managed to infect humanized mice. So, mice so that who's I, been changed yeah, to, have, to, to uh, be like human beings. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of thing that you'd expect from something like that. Not something that you'd expect so much from natural evolution. Again, not to say that it can't happen. Not to say right, that so look, there might be like a tree missing. It looked like a tree in a plantation rather than a tree in a forest. You can get a tall, straight tree in a forest. Um, it's just not as common. Yeah. And it's more and likely to find in a row. In a you can have 10 tall, straight trees in a, a row in a forest. Says so if you see ten tall straight trees in a row, it's not your first assumption that that this that this is uh, an act of nature. So, right. are we arguing that you should, yeah, pick up your pitchfork and and go shout at the new world order? Not at all. <laughs> but right, I think so can I just be... say something on on that point in particular? Actually, yeah, um, is I think one of the reasons why there was also a, a move to kind of distance respectable opinion away from this theory 
is that there was a fear that people would hear this kind of complicated story that involves some human error and then spin it way into, you know, crazy conspiracy theory and say, ah, you see, this is the truth. We told you the New World Order was right behind you. And 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 uh, so there was a an assumption, I think, built into to opinion shapers that the people are too dumb to get the distinctions and the subtleties here. And instead, um, we need to just kind of stay, stay away from anything that sounds like a conspiracy theory in, in, in discussing because, you know, who knows where that might lead. What do you think? Do you think that's, I think, I think that's uh, a, a very much a view that many people in the media have taken since fake news became a buzzword. Yeah, I think that is right. And I think it's a little bit, again, like the, the Ferguson mistake of treating, you know, if you treat human being like ants, who are only going to do things uh, when the government forces them to, it turns out, as far as I can tell from my experience in South Africa, they become more like ants. People right. were much more responsible and volitionally responsible uh, when it was still in their control. And then after like endless lockdown and whatever, I just, especially in the rural areas and times, I'm just seeing a lot of like people who, mm. as a point of pride, insist on, handshaking every stranger that they meet and you know it doesn't make part of my work irritating when i go out on these countryside jaunts i kind of have to self-isolate and get tested before i can hang out with a lot of people i know who are over 60 but i whatever it's my job so um but it is i do think that's a product of the way that people have been treated and if you treat people like stupid children who can't handle the truth then it turns out a lot of people start acting that way. And the best way to inflame the most radical kind of conspiracy theorists is to cover a fact up or to cover a set of facts yeah. which undermine your own narrative. Because then um, everyone is 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 everyone can legitimately ask the question at that point, how deep does this go? Yeah. Or how much if this is what we know publicly, how much are they not telling us? Exactly. And uh so I think it's. Uh, I I, th I think you are. I think you're spot on right to say that the that the theory was people will take this too far if you give any legitimacy to it, and if anything that's made things worse. So what is there to take away from this? I mean, one of the sad things to take away from this is that it does radically undermine, as if it weren't enough already the WHO's independence because right. the WHO went and did its independent investigation in February this year and found once again that there's no chance of a lab leak. Uh, Nothing and, to uh, see here. Our friend, our, our friend uh, Peter was also, I believe, on that, a part of that group, actually. He was to, part of the to, investigating to... committee. Peter Duzak right. was investigating his own thing after having already said a year earlier that there's no chance that there could have been a lab leak. So on that basis alone, he'd sort of uh right exposed so when a conflict later, of interest so and when the, when the who team said we've got everything on the table and we're considering every possibility i mean well one of your senior members actually doesn't agree with that stance <laughs> yeah and he's got a vested interest in in things coming up so peter right. does a problem but he's just one person i think the other thing that i take away from this is Neil Ferguson, Niall, Niall Ferguson, the Scott historian who is at Stanford University and the Hoover Institute and really is quite a brilliant fellow. He has this phrase which he coined 
and it gained some popularity and we even discussed it before and then it's, i don't know it sort of fell out of fashion a little bit but maybe it'll come back chimerica his thought two things he likes to push one is cold war two uh, that we've already entered a new kind of Cold War. And I and I think uh, he was pushing this before Donald Trump became president. I think after Donald Trump's uh, uh, time, I think most people agree that there are very serious yeah. geopolitical tensions between America. It, it, especially China. now when you see continuity between Trump and Biden and a lot of the China policy, actually. Yeah. Um, that that it is now definitely more hostile to China and ho- and China's more hostile to the US the the yeah. relationship is completely sad from both ends so. it, it's not just partisan and it's not just America it's many many countries um so cold war 2 but cold war 2 is like what is cold war 2 what is it different to it's different to chi america and chi america is is basically the model that emerges out of 78 but especially into the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, where China's labor market, which had been artificially repressed under under Mao, uh, opens up, and uh, Americans with a lot of money put their factories in China, where they get cheaper labor, make a lot of stuff, and then sell it back to Americans. And also don't have to follow as many uh, sort of health and safety regulations and all that kind of stuff, because in China, you know, a building, I, I think there was a senior Chinese government member who said a building only has to last 20 years, <laughs> for example. So it's and, a very and, different environment. Yeah. And part of an, if you really want to get into uh, uh, Ferguson's, uh, I'm getting the Neil and the Nile confused. So I'm just saying Scott Ferguson's, uh, the Scottish historian Ferguson's way of thinking about Chimerica, you really have to think about financial markets, about bond markets, about currencies. Um, it's 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 a uh, it's look i think he's right i think i think um i think it's pretty irrefutable that the way that finance and labor and capital and uh and fiscal uh, sort of financial sovereignty finance as in banking and and fiscal sovereignty as in reserve banks or base currencies the ways that those have related have been really good for pulling 800 have been an integral part of how 800 million chinese were pulled out of poverty or pulled themselves out of poverty in the last 30 years. Really good news story. Um, and how Americans could get such cheap iPhones and so on. Um, right. There's a lot going on there. But this seems to be such a Chimerica example in in its darkest tones, right? Because there there is really, really good stuff to it. And, and, and the ultimate project was that by opening up markets to China, um, and investing directly into China, despite some funny rules, uh, once Deng Xiaoping had basically privatized uh, almost all of the private house of all of the housing and real estate markets, and half of the let's say stock markets, um, it was it seemed to be capitalist enough or free market enough that if you just get in and help them out. We'll go all the way together, and China will become a, a sort of liberal free market democracy. That was the sort of aspiration. I mean, but I mean, a big part of the problem was this sort of the shady side of it, and the thought that this gain of function research starts in America, that the Americans get a little bit nimby about it, not in my backyard. They get a little bit iffy about some of it, so they outsource it, send it to a place where. 
the standards aren't as good. I mean, there are complaints coming out of the Wuhan Institute. This is one of the things that made me take this theory quite seriously from the first time I heard it was that I read about some Canadian researchers who were doing uh, shared research with a Chinese uh, institute. I'm not sure if it was the Wuhan one. I think it was a different one. And they said, uh, guys, can you send us some samples of these particular dangerous diseases? And the Chinese said, sure. And when they arrived, they were like not sealed properly and almost you know, a serious threat to, to the safety of the people who had handled them. At the Wuhan um, Institute, before the plague, there was a report filed saying, look, this is a level four lab. This is supposed to be the most secure lab in the world. Um, but they don't have enough special person, you know, high level personnel to really administer it. Right. So and on top of that, the gain of function research wasn't being done in the level four way. It is being done in the level two way, which means it's even easier for right. it to get out. Because the level four way is really annoying. You have to put on like a big suit and everything is slow. and It's very annoying. Yeah. So so it does seem like this Chimerica thing of kind of outsourcing. You've got the good fancy idea. You outsource the labor to a place where it's a bit cheaper, where the rules are a bit easier to bend for the sake of some kind of efficiency. And. Then there's a bit of an accident, and and the interesting thing is that it's not in either – that for a while, uh, Washington was criticizing Beijing and saying, ah, oh, China virus, China virus. And look, I think it's perfectly reasonable to call it the, the Chinese virus in the same way that it's perfectly reasonable to call it the Spanish flu. I mean, even if it didn't right. come from Spain, <laughs> came from Texas, whatever, calling it the Spanish flu – is an homage to the fact that they had the best free press at the time. So it was the first place that it was really reported on. And for everyone else who's not that into it, it's just the same name that everyone else uses. Language works by convention like that. And SARS-CoV-2 yeah. is a little bit hard to remember, but hey, we've got SARS-CoV-2. So let's rather call it SARS-CoV-2. I'm also happy with that. But anyway, there was this political thing of China virus, China virus. And then the Chinese started shooting back and saying, no, we think that you invented this in one of your labs in America. And that's really <laughs> crazy because how the hell could it get from a lab in America to Wuhan? And then both sides really stopped blaming each other and both sides sort of went along with this WHO thing, which is being investigated. One of the chief investigators, Peter Dujak, is a guy who has already declared the case closed, more or less, and has a vested interest in the labs being vindicated because he's connected both with this lab and with gain-of-function research in general. So it's really it's it's really not looking good. And as I've intimated in, in sort of five or ten minutes, but one could really go on about it. If you look at the actual details of the virology, the argument that this wasn't made in a bear, in a lab is it's there, but it's really standing up against a very strong argument that it was made in a lab. And and people should be finding it out. People much smarter than me and who've done spent their lives thinking about this should be openly debating it instead of sort of still relatively yeah. quiet yeah. thinking about it. But we're not there in a sense because America and China, Beijing and Washington have a consensus that we shouldn't look into this too much. And there is well, China, look, America will, will say, at its worst. The Americans did, I believe, criticize the final WHO report. Uh, so I, I agree with the way that you have set up the, the China America thing. But I think that there's... There's a tension because some of America reinforces Chimerica and some of America fights against it at every turn. 
Um, and the same right, thing so in Trump's China. America, well, Trump's China. America was very anti-Chimerica. That's really what they had it. They said, stop exporting right. jobs. And then clever people said, no, those jobs are never going to come back because we'll just get machines to do them. But then some jobs did come back or at least some jobs did increase and uh, sort of the income of the bottom 25% increased faster than the income of the top 25% for the first time in a while because the top guys make their money by owning shares in companies that are using cheap Chinese sweat labor. That's one story. There's another set of stories coming from uh, economists in the sort of democratic camp, I'm not trying to pick apart one of those stories, but absolutely, you're dead right. The, the Trump's hard sell was, I'm going to break Chimerica. I would rather, if the choice is between Chimerica and Cold War II, neither of which are great options, we'll um, Cold War II. I'm going to choose Cold War II. And, uh, and you know, I, I mean, I really don't like either option myself. Um and I'm not trying to pick favorites between them, but I do think that if Chimerica is going to, I think it's fair to say it has obstructed the best path to really verifying the truth. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone can seriously and honestly claim that we've put our best efforts into figuring yeah. out what really happened in a transparent and credible way. And, and it's unfortunately, a part of that, I think it's a kind of it's a it's a lingering problem, which is which is emblematic of broader problems, which get into, um, you know, quite sophisticated technology issues into the issues that concern me most into um, currencies and and sovereign bonds. Um but it's uh, also into uh, commodities, particularly, um, you know, the stuff that makes the world go round, energy stuff, whether it's solar or oil. Uh, it just, I just feel like we need to be putting our best foot forward right now. And that when I say we as, a, as, as humans, that the greatest <laughs> concentrations of wealth and power are, are presided over by Beijing and Washington. And that those two shouldn't be bringing out the worst in each other when they act together and bringing out the worst in each other when they act in hostile conflict. And that seems to be more and more the pattern that we're sliding into. I don't know if that's alarmist. Maybe not. But I struggle to think of the last time that Washington and Beijing got along in a way that I thought was really virtuous rather than kind of slimy. And I can't remember the last time that they fought where I thought, well, this is going to make things better. Mm. Well, we'll have to see. Um, this, is, I think the, yeah. this is definitely the, I think the conflict that's going to define at least the next 10 years, if not longer. Um, but we are going very long now, so we must close. Um, so Gabriel, do you have a recommendation for people in short? Don't F with cats. It's spelt F-U-C-K. It is a Netflix uh, documentary about a, a the esteem, the, the worst demon of the esteem market that you can imagine. Uh, someone who starts by killing cats uh, to make YouTube videos and then uh, gets even worse. And it's just, it's really well made. And it is at times very hard to watch, but I think they've done a good job of taking a very sinister subject and um, feeding it through 
the voice of people who have come out the other end um uh, and in particular people who just on the in- internet decided that they were going to make it their mission in their off hours to track this guy down and mm-hmm. uh and to stop him from very killing. Much, it's a brilliant very much brilliant about the sort of I wouldn't call that quite the the dark belly of the internet, although it does cross into some of that territory. Um, but it is the wild west of the internet. It's far from the civilized centers of, of. Uh, I mean, of, he's making he's making knowledge. snuff YouTube movies. It's a, it's. I think it's about as dark as you get. Yeah. Well, I think I think you can get worse uh, with sort of hiring hitmen and that kind of thing and unregistered sites and terrorists and that sort of stuff. But yeah, yeah this is this is really close to that that awfulness um but also the sort of weird decentralized activism which is a thing i think the Quite first inspiring. proper example yeah, yeah i think the first proper example that i know of, of that was i think the 2009 protests against the church of scientology's uh taking down of a video on youtube um uh, that was spearheaded by a group of people posting on the website Fortune, and, and that's that's a story for another day. <laughs> yeah, but mm. people can get this. What? It's not just up to Sherlock Holmes, you know. People can actually sit and listen and watch and read on the internet and actually figure and actually figure things out that the police can't figure out, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, what can I recommend? I'm actually not sure at the moment what what, what a good thing for me to recommend is. Um, so i think (laughs) (laughs) i had i had an idea before the show but i've completely forgotten it now it's actually just looking through through tabs i had saved recently on my browser to find out something but um uh yeah i can't i can't i can't find anything unfortunately so let's call it to a close there uh thank you very much for listening everyone um, we know we went a bit long, and this may have been a bit technical in some places, but I think that it's still worth it because it's useful to know exactly why a theory is good or not, or how some of these things work. And so, even if we're not all experts now, at least we have a vague understanding of what the debate is. Um, yeah, but yeah. And if you if you want to, I'm going to make a recommendation on, on Nicholas's behalf. If you want to read up about what we've been talking about, so that you can see the words and see some links to start your own investigation, if you're inclined to. In just spend a if you hour time. or two thinking about <laughs> this world-changing event. Uh, then, yeah, Nicholas Wade, Medium. Uh, the title of the piece is... Uh, oh, Origin of COVID, Following the Clues. Um, there, are, there are a few really good pieces that I've read, but I think that this one... Um, sort of gets to the technical detail in a in a readable way the fastest some of the yeah. other ones um kind of do the politics first and i think you really want to get to just the case so it is it is a long read though so do do settle yeah. in for it uh, it's not a <laughs> five minute uh yeah description cool well, um it, but yeah thank you so much. thanks everyone and uh have a wonderful week and we will see you soon um and keep the flag of liberty flying Kurt, 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 kurt.